Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams podcast. This week, featuring my very special guest, Mike Rothman of Cornerstone Analytics. Mike has forgotten more about oil markets than most of us will ever know. And as you're about to hear, he is refreshingly candid, he pulls no punches, and offers fact based analysis of perhaps the most crucial sector in the global economy right now without any filter whatsoever, which is incredibly, incredibly refreshing. Mike's experience is invaluable right now in understanding and handicapping the many moving parts of the energy market. So I was absolutely delighted he could find me an hour to chat about his particular field of expertise. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Mike Rothman. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. We've had to reschedule it a couple of times for various reasons, but we finally uh, find ourselves with a chance to talk. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me on your program. You know, uh, you, you and I have uh, several mutual friends in common, and uh, every one of them has always been glowing about your work. And, and I thought this was a, a, just a fantastic time to bring you on and talk to the audience about the energy markets. And the beauty of your work and the way you talk about the situation is, there are no holds barred, no punches pulled. You, you, you talk about things in a very real way. And I think it's really important for people to have a genuine understanding of how the energy world is rather than how they'd like it to be. So I think what I'd like to start off with is, uh, you know, I watched a presentation you gave with uh, one of our mutual friends, Dave Rosenberg, where you gave a superb backdrop to the realities of the energy market. So perhaps we could kick off with how the world is, and then we'll talk about um, potential shifts in that world. Yeah, so I'm not the politically correct guy. Uh, it just works out that way. Uh, I've been at this not quite 40 years. Clients lovingly refer to me as the Andrew Dice Clay of the oil markets because <laughs> I do not uh, I, I do not sugarcoat things. Uh, I've worked with five different administrations and different kinds of uh, people in various parts of government. Uh, sort of an outside consultant. And I feel like the best answers are the ones that are blunt and uh, to the point. And if I don't know something, I just say, I don't know, and I'll try to get an answer. But it's kind of hard to uh, compartmentalize the last few years. And you end up leaving out a lot of things that might matter. But if you want to boil it down, we, we saw this collapse in demand from isolating and containment measures related to COVID in 2020 biggest drop in oil demand ever, dwarfed what happened in the the global credit crisis. OPEC responded with the largest ever production cut to keep inventories from swelling. And the reason in a lot of our work and what our clients are used to seeing, inventories and oil prices are strongly inversely related. So if the global system is seeing inventories build, it means there's excess and prices should weaken and vice versa. So OPEC's job was to prevent a cataclysmic build in inventories. But the thing is, those events, in some regard, mask bigger picture trends that are in place and not generally focused on. So number one is the idea of oil demand growth remaining in a secular uptrend. Now, this will feed into other questions I'm sure people might have about green energy or green energy initiatives, but the world runs on oil. There is no substitute for oil to account for what's used for transportation, believe it or not, and petrochemicals. And generally, oil demand grows at about half of the rate of GDP. So as everything was happening related to COVID and all these isolating and containment measures called various dislocations, the thing is, the assumption was after we get past the pandemic, we're going to be back to the secular growth in demand. What was problematic for people to uh, come to terms with was a commensurate rebound in supplies from the non-OPEC countries. So I know this is not an oil audience, but when you talk about uh, global oil supply, the world breaks down into the OPEC countries and the non-OPEC countries. 
The non-OPEC countries basically will always produce at full capacity. They don't keep any spare production in check. It's usually 100% whatever's available. And then the OPEC countries, whether they like it or not, tend to be something of a balance wheel. The issue with the non-OPEC story and why this matters to such a broader group of people is that the oil industry has seen and cut back its spending on production businesses dramatically over the last eight years. We're down about $2.2 trillion in spending on the oil production side of the business. Now, that number may not mean anything, so just take my word, that is a lot of money uh, and a lot of resources not going into uh, something that you need to keep investing in. And we have seen in the last 10 years, almost 100% of all the non-OPEC supply growth come from one country, the US, and it's been dominated by shale oil. Now, shale oil was portrayed by many, many people as kind of a savior for the global oil markets. It was going to be this inexhaustible supply of liquids. It would keep oil prices low forever. And it was really uh, marketed hard by a lot of the people, probably who were doing the investment banking side of uh, transactions for firms in the industry. But the problem with shale oil is a fewfold. Number one, it's by definition a burst of production or what we call a short life resource. So the industry basically has to keep drilling its brains out to try to replace production from your existing wells. And again, I know this is not an oil audience, but the thing is a typical oil field will produce for 30, 40 or 50 years. And a shale oil well only has a life of about five years. So you're really talking about a very short-term amount of liquid. That's number one. Number two, related to that, is back in 2019, to our clients, we were publishing work that suggested we were entering the twilight phase of shale. So we were seeing U.S. crude oil production growth, but it was happening at a slower and slower and slower rate. So mathematically, it's referred to as a negative second derivative, but it just means it's growing at a slower and slower, slower rate. Why, why would we care about that? Because that feeds into the bigger issue about the longevity of relying on shale oil as a source of liquid or crude for the global oil markets. And when you look at the 10 years that that all happened in, the other 79 countries that make up non-OPEC supply didn't grow. And we had $100 per barrel oil in about half of that time. So that was a fairly big red flag. And of course, the issue of green energy initiatives and the things that you'll hear about regarding moving away from oil started to really now intensify the pressure on oil companies to not invest in their production capacity, which will basically only heighten the bullish pressures on the oil market. So this idea that we can somehow quit oil that's been pushed by a lot of people to have their own agendas really is a disservice because the world does not have the ability to move away from using petroleum. So you say, what, what does all that shit mean? Well, it means your demand's gonna keep growing, your non-OPEC supply is not gonna keep pace, which means you're now gonna rely on OPEC to fill the gap. And of course, OPEC at this point has much more limited spare production capacity than what we've seen historically. So. When I started to attend OPEC meetings, which is in 1986, those meetings used to last for weeks. Literally, you would go away and you would be gone for a couple of weeks. My first meeting in December 86 was 17 days. They were fighting over like 200,000 barrels a day of quota cuts because no one wanted to cut production. They had gone from producing 31 million barrels a day in 1981 to 16 million barrels a day when I showed up. So they had 15 million barrels of spare capacity when the whole world was using only 60 million a day. So it was very tough to get these agreements. If you look at what happened, say, in August of 1990, Iraq invades Kuwait, 4.2 million barrels of exports disappear overnight, literally. That's what those two countries were sending out. The rest of OPEC was able to make that up within three weeks. So no problem when you had a disruption or any kind of a dislocation. And you fast forward to where we are today, and of course, the issue of Russia comes up, and there's been estimates suggesting that we're going to lose 3 million barrels a day of Russian production from various self-imposed embargoes and sanctions. And you say, well, 
if you lose three million a day, which would be a fairly significant event in its own right, OPEC can't make that up. In fact, the rest of the world can't make that up. And this is sort of a reflection of these structural supply and demand pressures that are very, very bullish and not going away. And a number of the large consuming countries like the US have talked about these massive releases of emergency oil inventories, and they will not be able to offset these structural bullish pressures. So we find ourselves in a situation where bullish oil market fundamentals continue to unfold and not to beat up on the green energy initiatives or things like that. But the pressures coming from that anti-carbon lobbying will cause the pressure on oil companies to intensify to not spend on this needed upstream capacity. I, I hear your dog in the background. I want more dogs on my podcast. I, I, <laughs> you stop I, there, so I, I, that's funny, man. He's, he's the house dog. I, I'm sorry. I no, can, let him rip. I can go let yell at him if you want me to take a break. No, let him rip. I want, I want more dogs, not less. Um, so, Mike, uh, you, you touched on there about just how reliant the world is upon carbon fuel. So just put some color around that because I, you know, when I saw your presentation, it's like getting smacked in the head by a two-by-four because we are conditioned – to this narrative that, oh, yeah, we can seamlessly transition from carbon-based fuels to a green future. But once you, you get someone like you come along that gives you the reality of it, I mean, it's, it's a lot of cold water. Well, my job is not to be an iconoclast, right? My job is to look at a lot of different data, assess a lot of different geopolitical considerations, and then look at how things will unfold whether it's bullish uh, for oil prices and then bullish for oil equities or bearish, right? The, the idea is to try to look at this Rubik's cube of sorts and, you know, solve that puzzle. And, you know, this notion of green energy, while there's a lot of uh, support behind it and understandably people thinking about the climate uh, have their concerns, it, it's been sort of at the expense of the realities of the way the world consumes energy and even subtopics such as energy poverty and, you know, three eighths of the world's population. But when you look at these things, especially electric vehicles, because we, we have been bombarded over the last few years with questions about electric vehicles. Most people don't think about the rare earth metals and the materials that are needed to produce an EV. Uh, they're not even thinking about the source of the energy to power that EV. Um, I think there's a hope that you can put it out in the sun and it'll somehow charge your car and you're going to get, you know, more than 80 miles on it. There's very little that's been done in the way of thinking about the fact that even to build a car like a, a Tesla or something like that, it takes about 60 barrels of oil to make the plastic in that car. I mean, that's just one of those other small ironies. But there's this a very poor conveyance of factual data about what's really involved in switching over to a, a type of vehicle that essentially will run on coal, because that's what you're going to power with. The other sort of issues you have is people don't think about all the petrochemicals that are in their life. Like even yourself, if you looked around your office and where you're working, uh, there's no part of what's around you that's not containing some sort of energy component. It just doesn't happen with pixie dust or you know unicorn powder or something like that. It, it, it requires an energy input. So there, uh, there's a lot of people that are going to be you know, caught ill-prepared to deal with the reality of oil use, petroleum use, hydrocarbon use in general. And like I said, for me, when I think about it long-term, human ingenuity, one day we'll figure out how to burn seawater and sunshine. But until we're at that point, you're stuck talking to guys like me and having to deal with the realities of the uh, the energy markets. But you know, people tend to make these very simple assessments of energy. They say things like, well, if we go into recession, demand for oil falls. It's that simple. So it's not bullish for oil if the economy goes into recession. With very little either time or understanding devoted to, as you say, the structure of the markets and, and the various imbalances and the various uh, pressure points on that. So let's try and dig into that as a myth that the strength of the economy equals 
the robustness of the oil price because it just seems to me that it's 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 way too simplistic and particularly as you describe the kind of fragility of the shale patch given the sort of uh, policies of the Biden administration in terms, of, in terms of restricting that if we do get the economic slowdown that a lot of people have been uh, forecasting this idea that that means that oil is not going to continue higher from where it is now. I, I, I just don't see that to be the case. But I mean, you'll either disavow me of that or perhaps help me understand why I might be right. So uh, not to be disrespectful to anybody, but most people who talk about those things tend not to think about the other parts of the oil balance. They don't think about OPEC adjusting its supply. They don't think yeah. about what might happen to non-OPEC supply. And this is why... Uh, there is no if then, like if the economy slows down, then oil prices do X. It really doesn't work that way, number one. Uh, number two, uh, as a general comment, again, I think most people don't understand that oil demand is perfectly inelastic. So you say, well, okay, is this like the school teacher coming out? No. But if you took an economics class at some point in your life, you, you learn about something called elasticity. There's income elasticity, price elasticity. How much does the demand for something change if the price of something changes? So the price of chicken goes up 10% and demand goes down 10%, you'd say it's perfectly elastic. Uh, if the price of chicken goes up 10% and demand goes down 1%, you say it's very inelastic. Oil is perfectly inelastic. If we look at the last two decades, the price of oil has gone up 350 something percent and oil demands up 35 percent. So they don't teach you that in your college class, but that's right. the reality of oil. And it has to do with the fact that there really isn't a substitute for it. If you drive a car or a truck, it needs gasoline or diesel. If you take a plane somewhere, it's going to be kerosene type jet fuel. You know, you're on a train in the middle of nowhere, it's going to run on diesel. You're on a ship in the middle of the ocean, it's running on residual fuel. There, there isn't something else you can put in the tank to make up for the petroleum that's required to move that particular vehicle, much less things like petrochemicals. So number one, uh, on this issue of if we have a recession, it means X for demand. Well, if the economy slows, oil demand growth also will slow. That's pretty straightforward. It doesn't mean it's necessarily bearish for oil prices because then we deal with what will OPEC do. If they decide to maintain production at a level that keeps inventories from swelling, that's going to arrest any kind of a price decline. And that's why my job is every day. I don't do this once a month, go play golf 28 days or 29 days, come back and do it again. It's, it's something you have to always keep working at. But the idea of a recession and what happens to oil demand and prices, uh, because reductionism has become the prevalent method of analysis by most people, they're just trying to oversimplify everything. You know, there was a time when people talked about uh, peak demand, then peak supply, uh, then demand destruction, then shale oil, and, and everything boiled down to all you need to know is this. Yeah. And that's always, it's always been wrong, by the way. Uh, when I was at Merrill Lynch, uh, Back in 2000, made a call that oil was going to be a $25 commodity. It was based on the correct assessment that the key OPEC countries needed a higher price and would work to get a higher price. Everybody knew I was wrong. Everybody knew that there was no way OPEC would be able to adjust its production. Everybody knew that a $25 oil price would kill the economy and kill demand. Everybody knew that there would be massive amounts of non-OPEC supply because of that higher price. And uh, of course, none of that happened. The world kept growing. Uh, OPEC did, in fact, successfully keep prices at that higher range. And then we saw prices continue to go higher and higher and higher and higher. So we went from there's no way that oil prices can go up to there's no way oil prices are going to go down. And that's reductionism uh, yeah. manifest. And so uh, you seeing that in the various industries you might be looking at, different people you're talking to in oil, we see it all the time. People try to dumb down a forecast to like one single variable or one data point, and that's just you know laziness. I don't think there's any other word for it. But the reality of the oil market and what we see is you'll hear economists are saying there's a 25% chance of a recession. Okay, I'm not, I mean, I'm trained in economics. Uh, we don't put out economic forecasts, but I will tell you that the odds of a recession are 100%. Yeah, and you say, well, what the hell right. does that mean? Where's that coming from? And I'll and I'll tell you why. 
If I'm right about the what I call the medium term outlook for the global oil markets, and it's always heroic and stupid to say, uh, let's assume I'm right, and I think I will be right. What's going to have to happen here is the price of oil is going to have to go to a point that starts to choke off oil demand. Now, there is a type of analysis called the oil burden. It looks at expenditures on oil as a percent of GDP. So again, for the Joe Main Street guy out there, if you make $200 a week and you can pay all your bills, take your lady out for dinner uh, one night, pay your phone, pay your heat, pay your electric, um, buy gas for your car, and maybe save a few dollars in the process, life's not really a problem for you. But if you were spending, say, $10 a week on gasoline, and all of a sudden you're spending $30 a week on gasoline, but you're still making the same $200, you're probably not going out to dinner. You, you may not pay your phone bill every month. You know, you may be paying your electric bill sometimes, et cetera, et cetera, because you're spending money on energy instead of the normal stuff you would spend it on. And if you look at the world, uh, when we get up to about 7% of GDP, which is income, think of 7% GDP being spent on, on uh, oil, that's kind of a real choke point. That's a very problematic point. Uh, we, we start to see an effect when that number gets up to about 5% of GDP. So you say, well, what does that translate back into when I think about oil prices? And that 5% number is about $130. And that's an annual average, by the way. That's yeah. not the price for you know one afternoon. And the price that gets you to 7% is somewhere around 181 per barrel. And that's an annual average, not just for a day or a week. So why am I being so kind of pushy about this point? Because what I see happening is an inability for non-OPEC supply and even the available OPEC capacity to deal with rising demand over the next couple of years. I think we are actually in a multi-year cycle where there's going to be tightness in the oil market, which means you have to think about things a little unconventionally in the context of demand regulating the cycle as opposed to both supply and demand regulating right. the cycle, right? So that's that's what I see happening and why. So it's not a question of are we going to have a recession. I think it's a, I think it's 100 uh, percent likely, uh, not tomorrow, not next week, but it's going to happen. Just what we see in the oil markets now, in 2008 2009, when we had that recession, oil prices were on their way uh, higher. Uh, we peaked out at 147.27 uh, per barrel for WTI, but Oil did not cause that recession. That was the global credit crisis and yep. the credit markets and that mechanism seizing up. So if something else causes a recession, uh, that's a different animal, but that's not what we're paid to forecast. We're just talking about the global energy markets. And so if you hold everything else constant, it looks like oil is going to be ultimately the factor that causes that to occur. So just as a sidebar, you know, we, we hear an awful lot of discussion about OPEC cutting production, OPEC increasing production. We've we've heard recently with what Russia are doing that um, their oil is backing up to the wells and they may have to shut those wells down. To anyone who's unfamiliar with the mechanics of the business, it sounds like you literally just like turn one of those valves on and you turn one of those valves off and the oil comes out and the oil doesn't come out. It's obviously a lot more complicated than that and a lot lengthier process in terms of once you've you've made one of those adjustments to reverse it. Can you give people a sense of how that process works and the kind of timeframes we're talking about, the kind of difficulty levels in just simply cutting and increasing production? So it's not a keg and beer. You know, you just don't stick the tap in and uh, pump it a couple of times and, you know, fill your glass. Uh, oil is an active... Uh, resource, you drill into a reservoir, you uh, produce from that reservoir, pressure changes over time in that reservoir. So you have a decline effect and a, and a depletion effect, and then you have to replace it. And finding and replacing production from existing wells is very problematic when we talk about shale, but even in the rest of the world, if you're thinking about a decline rate of about 4%, and you're you're talking about uh, you know 100 million barrels a day uh, take out the U.S. That's like three and a half million barrels a day every year. You have to find a replace for non-U.S. production. So 
when you're not investing in upstream capacity, it's it's kind of hard to think about uh, meeting demand growth. That that is the problem. We've had bouts of significant gains from non-OPEC supply. The shale growth was interesting and notable, notable because it was mainly the main source of all non-OPEC supply growth for 10 years. And that's got a troubling aspect. And then back in the 70s into the mid 80s, we saw a significant expansion as countries like uh, the UK and Norway and the North Sea, uh, Mexico with the Cantarell field. Uh, in the United States, we had BP Prudhoe Bay. You have these big structures come on and add to supply growth. And that occurred as there was a major change at that time in the way oil was used. A lot of oil in the 70s, about 31% globally, was for heat and power. And we saw natural gas and nuclear power, uh, coal, and to a small extent, hydroelectric displace oil that was used for heat and power. So you had demand going down and you had non-OPEC supply going up. And that's why OPEC had so much spare capacity. In the current environment, when you're thinking about that card, it, it's been played unless you know somebody, because I don't know anybody who figures out fusion in a jar. And you're thinking about uh, you know meeting demand growth. And then, of course, you have companies that are pressured to not invest in their production. In fact, one of the things that was ironic is when the recent announcements about U.S. sales of emergency stockpiles, when that all happened, at the same time, the administration announced proposals to raise taxes on oil producing companies. Yep. So yeah. it, it really is ironic, just like it was ironic that they had a meeting in Europe about uh, green energy initiatives and you had an armada of jumbo jets fly to have all these people meet as opposed to doing it on a video conference. Like I think the irony was lost on people, but uh, oil production has become much more challenging in the almost 40 years that I've been doing this. We've gone from a lot of onshore deposits to now you're offshore. And then you hear about something like subsalt structures in Brazil, which again, sounds very geeky and technical, but these are deposits of oil that are very, very far down in the earth. And they present a lot of challenges, uh, just the metallurgy involved to get that oil from that depth is, is a technical challenge. So oil production, if you look at the way it's grown, it's come from sources that are frankly more difficult. And then someone says, well, we can go drill oil in the in the Arctic. And you know, I've been on oil rigs in the North Sea. Uh, you know, they talk about these hundred foot waves. Uh, I didn't see a hundred foot wave, but I know it's scary as hell to think about, right? And uh, you got to tow this thing out there, and then you're you're drilling in all kinds of conditions, and it's not so easy. It's it's not like going to the store and just picking up a, a bunch of bananas. You know, there's there's like really technical work that's involved, and you got to find it, and you got to produce it. And of course, the other complicating factor that very few people spend time talking about is that if you look at OPEC. And you think about their capacity, a number of those countries have significant risk associated with their supply. So Venezuela is melted down in front of us. It's amazing how few people even focus on it. But here's a country that was producing 3.4 million barrels a day of oil, 3.6 million barrels of oil. And they're currently somewhere around 600,000. Mm -hmm. I don't even think I've gotten 20 emails about that. You have a civil war in Iraq that no one pays attention to. You have a Christian Muslim war in Nigeria that very few people ever ask about. Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure has been attacked, significant attacks in the last couple of years. Very few people pay attention to it. So, uh, and then of course you got the Libyan civil war, which again, I I rarely get a question about it. And, and you say, well, why are you bringing all that crap up for? It's like, because if you're relying on a group of countries to fill a void and, and a number of those countries are having problems, your assumption about reliability maybe needs to be revisited. <laughs> and then and we talked a little earlier uh, about Russia, but you know, in our forecast for the oil balance for this year, we made no assumptions about outages. In other words, we assume there's no major outages, whether it's weather related or uh, geopolitical in nature. And Russia invading Ukraine has a huge element of energy attached to it because Russia is the second largest net exporter of oil in the world. The largest is Saudi Arabia. And their exports of uh, crude and refined products 
total about seven and a half to 7.8 million barrels a day, which nobody can cover, nobody. So in, in our work, when that started, I think we were on the right track. The notion that they would be embargoed or their oil would be embargoed seemed like a very low probability event because there's no way to make it up. And there were self-imposed embargoes. There were yeah. people who normally would buy that oil that were afraid of being sanctioned if they bought that oil. But there's no wholesale embargo of Russian supply. And these SPR releases, these emergency inventory releases that have been put together by the OECD, if you add all of the barrels up, it's about 325 million barrels of emergency inventory that's going to be sold between now and October. That's that's the number. Uh, 50 million of that's already been sold from the U.S. since, uh, I think, early November. And if you think about Russia losing 3 million barrels a day for nine months, which is what some of these projections have been, that's 850 or so, 825 million barrels of oil that would be forfeited, which means you're still in a big hole. And as inventories go down, like I said, oil prices go up. That's the relationship. So the tightening of the market that we expected uh, could be much more severe than what we had already forecast and uh, happened a lot sooner than what we had forecast. And of course, the contrast there is that the consensus thought last year was going to see a big inventory build. Uh, 2021, in fact, saw the largest inventory draw on record. And then the forecast was we're going to get a big inventory bill this year. And we're already, you know, seeing large contra-seasonal draws this year, which means you, you got a lot of people on the wrong side of what's really happening. And then you throw Russia into the mix. And, you know, you're like I said, you're you're ill-prepared if you believe those consensus projections. Yeah. The issue of Russia has been one that's dominated the news cycle now for, for some considerable period of time. And again, you, know, you, you refer to it as reductionism, which I think is the perfect way to describe all this. Everybody's looking for the simplest possible explanation of what are inherently incredibly complex dynamics. And the Russia one uh, has been boiled down to Europe's dependency upon Russia for energy. So, so perhaps you could give us a realistic assessment of where Russia fits in the, 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 the energy world in terms of who its customers are, the pressure points there, and the reality of Europe either committing Hari Kiri and, and cutting themselves off from Russia's supply, which to me seems an impossibility. But look, hey, European politicians have done some stupid things in their time, even if it's in the short term. But just give us an assessment of Russia's place in this, the people who are most affected by it and the options, if any, they have to wean themselves off Russian oil. So if you look at Russia's outflow of not just oil, but natural gas, yeah. they're the largest exporter of natural gas in the world. Again, the average person listening to your podcast doesn't know what a billion cubic feet a day is, but take my word for it. It's a lot of gas. They export about 22 to 23 billion cubic feet a day. Most of that goes to Europe. Russian gas into Europe uh, meets about 40% or so of total European natural gas demand. So that is an irreplaceable chunk. You're not going to get that from Gutter or North Africa or, you know, Chenier out of the U.S. or something like that. Europe imports about 10 million barrels a day of oil. Their demands roughly 13 to 13 and a half million a day. European countries produce about three and a half, so they import 10, and a third of those oil imports come out of Russia. There is no substitute for either of those. So I think the term you used was Harry Carey. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's probably the best description to describe some of those policies, saying, well, we're going to not have any Russian gas or promises from the U.S. administration that they're going to somehow fill that void, which is not possible. So there really isn't an option unless you want to just turn off the lights, turn off the heat and, you know, sit in the dark and be cold, which is fine. Not fine for me, but that's, you know, if you want to do that, God, God bless. But the reality is there isn't really an option there. And the issue of distrust about Russian supplies, by the way, isn't new. 
Again, back in 2006, I think it was in the, in the middle of winter, they cut natural gas supplies to Ukraine. And then I believe it was two years later, they cut off oil supplies in the middle of winter to Belarus. And so the Europeans' distrust about Russia using its energy resources as a weapon is not a new issue. In fact, they built three natural gas pipelines out of North Africa to try to diversify supply, which are each Herculean task in themselves. But that's how much they were trying to diversify supply. But here we are. They're still relying on 40% of their natural gas needs from Russia and roughly a third of what they have to import for their oil. So I don't see any real option there unless, you know, you want to do the Stone Age household thing. We've seen uh, quietly a reshaping of Russia's clientele, if you like. You know, we've seen obviously the, the pressure put on Europe, even though Europe is still sending them billions of euros a day in terms of oil. But we've seen pressure brought to bear on other countries to boycott Russian oil. But what's actually happened is, you know, countries like Japan, for example, have said that, you know, we're going to continue to buy Russian energy. We've seen India talk about how if we can buy cheap energy for our citizens, we're absolutely obligated to do so. You know, is there a chance that the oil market actually gets reshaped by this and old alliances disappear and new alliances are formed and the, and the balance of power with regards energy shifts eastward away from the West? And if that happens, what does America do to try and restore that balance of power? Because it's obviously in their interest to try and do so. So America as the largest consumer of oil in the world. It's about a fifth of world demand. It's also the largest producer, but most people have no idea that most of the oil that's produced, the crude uh, from shale, is the wrong kind of crude for US refineries, which is why there's six and a half million barrels a day of pipeline projects in various stages of completion. And the irony is lost that U.S. shale oil is great for Russian, Chinese, African, and Latin American teapot refineries. It's, it's literally just the wrong kind of crude. So that's number one. Number two, I've been at this a pretty long time. There really has never been a comprehensive U.S. energy policy. The only energy policy I've ever seen expressed is cheap gasoline at the pump. And 9-11, when those attacks happened and... I was there the day that it happened, and you would have thought, uh, even if you weren't uh, well-versed in energy or an expert on the global energy markets, that the U.S. would have thought about developing some kind of a comprehensive energy policy uh, in the wake of uh, that event. It didn't happen at all. In fact, there's a certain level of profanity I'm just not going to expose on your podcast, but um, I was having a lunch in the White House about six weeks after the uh, Renewable Fuel Act was put in place. And uh, the fellow I was with got a good sense of humor, and it's funny to hear him tell the story, but he's like, there's big Mike Rothman calling me of this and of that and everything else because I was yelling at him thinking, how did you turn 9-11 into a handout for corn farmers? Because that was the sum total of the U.S. Yeah. energy policy response was to give corn farmers more money to make corn-based ethanol, which is really just a goofy policy response. Uh, ethanol's got a, a negative effect on cars' efficiency. You get less miles per gallon. It's problematic to store. It actually, there's a question about if you use more BTUs to make it than what you get out of it, et cetera, et cetera. But here we are in the wake of 9-11, and the, the sum total of the energy policy response was to give corn farmers more money. I, I got nothing against corn farmers, but nothing was done on the dieselification of the auto fleet or anything else that might have had some kind of an impact. So when you think about the U.S. Uh, in the terms of the question you asked me, uh, I'm not really sure that uh, there's any kind of broader comprehensive view about uh, an energy policy. You hear different politicians spouting off about green energy and you know, spending literally trillions of dollars on these programs on some kind of false hope that it is going to make uh, the U.S. somehow independent from what happens to the rest of the world in, in the energy mix, which is another fallacy. But um, and again, I 
you know, from the sake of being selfish and thinking about my kids and, and my grandkids, you, you do hope somebody invents something that can replace petroleum. I mean, we used to burn wood, then we burn coal, now we burn oil. And, you know, like I said, maybe one day we will burn seawater and sunshine. But uh, short of that, uh, all these different sort of stabs at trying to diffuse even the current situation with these strategic emergency sales is, you know, you're, you're, you're throwing deck chairs off the Titanic. But, but does this kind of um, realignment of interests thanks to Russia and, you know, new low, low price of its energy. Does this kind of realignment of interests affect long-term the supply-demand balance or the ability of countries like Russia to divert fuel away from Europe and towards the West and, and also perhaps prick up the Saudis' ears and make them think, well, you know, there is a perhaps a much more stable demand source given the U.S.'s energy independency, certainly in the short term, to to our east as opposed to the west? So the U.S. is not energy independent. It's the second largest crude importer after China. And it has to do with the fact that our refineries need certain types of oil. Uh, the ones we produce domestically don't fill the bill. So the notion of people saying the U.S. is energy independent is, is uh, it's a lie. In terms of who, who has power and, and sort of the global chess game, you know, right now uh, there's a tremendous amount of power concentrated in countries that can export oil on a net basis. You, you literally are the guy selling air on the moon, right? That's, you can't get, a, you can't get away from, uh, you got to pay that guy. So I don't know that there's uh, necessarily a long-term issue. I, I know that there's, been studies. We've, we've been uh, part of groups looking at concerns about resource conflict related to exactly this type of issue. You have a country like China, whose oil demand is growing fairly significantly, but their domestic oil production is kind of flatlining. And so every year that triangle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, they've tried to buy oil companies. They've tried to buy technologies. But the fact is, uh, their oil use is still very, very low on a per capita basis. Uh, it hasn't even gone through the acceleration phase that most economies experience as they modernize. Uh, India's in the same camp. Indonesia's in that camp. Brazil's in that camp. There's a lot of countries in that camp. And so the longer term big strategic question has been, how the hell are you going to meet oil demand as these economies uh, go through an upgrade in their standard of living scale? How the hell do you come up with that supply? And I'm not sure what that answer is, but it's not by pushing green energy initiatives. That's a great place to shift and talk about policy because um, the, you know, the policy around energy has been driven wholly by politics and not even remotely by practicality for, for such a long time now. And it's been a kind of self-reinforcing loop. You know, the, the more they've talked about the stuff, the more important it's become to talk about this stuff, certainly on the kind of political side of it. You know, we've seen refusals to build pipelines between Canada and the US. We've seen shutting down a keystone. Talk a little bit about energy policy. I know you said there isn't a comprehensive one, but but it seems to me that, that the decisions being made from a political standpoint are enormously detrimental to the US in particular. Um, so talk a little bit about that kind of chaos and if there is any chance of a shift, any chance of a willingness to go back and maybe green light pipelines, if not from this administration, from future administrations. So I have no idea what future administrations are going to bring to the table, but we have not had the ability to get certain projects like the Keystone completed, which, again, from my point of view, was and should have been a no-brainer. Why would you yeah. not expand the ability to take crude that refiners can use from Canada, a country that is stable, and it has the ability to raise its production? And the answer is because environmental lobbyists have a bigger stick. That's the short answer. Canada itself has that problem. It needs to build export capacity, and its own environmental lobby has blocked that progress. They, they need to build new lines to be able to move crude out to the Pacific uh, so they can get to customers and 
that has been uh, stomped on. So they've been relying on trains, which is kind of, you know, funny. I mean, we're using trains still to move crude from the middle of the U.S. to certain hubs. Yeah. Uh, people use trains 130 years ago. I mean, we're, we're talking about technology from the late 1800s being employed to move oil as opposed to a pipeline. I, I don't really know when you'll get a big move, but I, I'll, I will say this, I'll, I'll venture a perspective here. And it is based on my observations over a fairly long period of time, which is what tends to finally get policy to move. It doesn't always happen, but the tendency is when availability becomes an issue. People will bitch and moan about paying more for something, but they go a little bots when they can't get it. That's when you start thinking about uh, policy responses that might uh, change the equation. And that is something that may very well occur if I'm right about the way the oil market's going to unfold in the next uh, couple of years. I, I think that's that may be what gets policy to move. But again, you look at something like 9-11, which was a fairly dramatic event. It was global in terms of uh, the reaction to it. And the policy response to that was giving corn farmers money, as opposed to something that would have been more meaningful and even structural. But as of this point, it doesn't look like the environmental lobbies giving up any ground. And they have been able to prevent a lot of different projects from taking place, like something simple. If you were to have somebody try to research, when was the last U.S. refinery built? You're going back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it might be the 70s. We've done capacity additions, but you can't permit a new refinery. Yeah. You, you can't you can't permit a dam. You know, if you're thinking about hydroelectric, you you can't permit a dam. I think Bonneville Power is the last hydroelectric project in the United States. So the environmental lobby has a, you know, they have a they have very strong uh footing, uh strong pervasive powers, and uh they have been able to exert a lot of influence over decisions that from, again, my perspective as a energy market expert, I hate saying that word, but as someone who looks at the energy markets, you're thinking, again, it should have been a no-brainer to build some of these projects. Yeah. Can't get them done. You, you talked about refineries, but uh, the other thing, obviously, is LNG also, LNG terminals. My friend Doomberg wrote a piece about this uh, a little while ago, talking about the Jones Act and the inability of American uh, states to bid for LNG and to transport it internally. They're you know they're bidding against Asia. They're bidding against um, Europe, which seems crazy to me. But again, uh, people tend to come back to this reductionism idea. They think, well, we'll just build a new. LNG. Why don't we start building LNG refineries now? Even if you can get the permitting done, which seems uh, to be extraordinarily difficult, just try and give people a sense of the scale of building an oil refinery or an LNG uh, facility? Because it, it, it these are not things that you can knock up in 18 months, right? Yeah, you're not driving to Kmart and picking up a liquefaction unit for, <laughs> right, you know, right, exactly. these, these things have to be engineered. There's all kinds of environmental impact studies that have to be done. The, you know, the ships that move liquefied natural gas are holding about 5 billion cubic feet of natural gas, which is kind of a, a engineering marvel. And they're, they're all obviously custom made. They have to be made to extremely high specifications. It's not like you can have a leak, right? It's not, right. It's not a balloon at a birthday party. A uh, little hydrogen leaks out, you're, you're not, or helium leaks out. You're not worried about it. But um, they require massive amounts of capital. And you know the projects in and of themselves, they are capital extensive and they take time. But then imagine the layers of difficulty involved with trying to do those projects when there's perfect economic sense to do it. And you have environmental lobby saying, well, we, we don't want to do that. It's, uh, it creates an issue. It, um, it, it, it may cause some pollution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the, the list is not a simple thing. And uh, even something that, uh, like during the Obama administration, uh, used to love to talk about the idea of building windmills. So we're going to build all these windmills yeah. in the middle of the country. And, you know, that, that comes across my desk and I'm sort of looking at whoever the person might be at the time trying to push that on me. And I say, well, if your population lives on the 
uh, coast dominantly and you're creating electricity in the middle of the country, how, how exactly are you moving that from you know point A to points B and C? Uh, you can't even get people to build low loss lines. We're, we're talking about an electric cable that's insulated. You, you couldn't even get those built. There's no chemicals involved with that. You know, you're just digging a trench. There's nothing passing through it. There's no liquids, uh, et cetera. And you couldn't even get that done. So, um, you know, again, uh, I'm not, I'm not uh, advocating reckless abandon. That's certainly not my job. And that's not what I do. I deal with supply demand and things are either bullish or bearish. But I know that when you have inertia working against you in terms of constructing infrastructure, it, by definition, it, it tends to be tough to, you know, uh, get people to move off of that square. And even the LNG that's in place, again, the average person has no idea how many years in the making it took to get Chenier and these other facilities constructed. It wasn't like they decided on Monday to do it and on Friday they were breaking ground. These things took years and years yeah. and years. So, so with all, all that being said and, and a, a much better understanding of the dynamics of the market, let's talk about the oil price because that's the thing that everybody focuses on and it really has it's, – it's amazing how it's been boiled down to a number and, and how many people just key off that number and, and have a forecast of it going here, going there. Obviously, it went negative back in 2020, which, which proves, I would hope, to anybody that it can go anywhere if the conditions are right. So let, let's talk about what you see happening from here with the oil price because, uh, you know, I, my own view is that no matter what happens economically, the price is going higher. And certainly what you've said to me today reinforces that in my own mind, but my own mind is nowhere near as adroit at figuring out all this stuff as you. So, so let's talk about what you see um, in the future for oil going forward. So the price of oil or any commodity at a particular point in time represents the collective perception of reality. Right. That's a really important thing. Sort of write it down, uh, carve it into a stone. But the price at a point in time is the perception of reality. Uh, guys like me get paid to figure out what is reality and then look for when we have those gaps. Yeah. You know, a uh, year and a half ago, roughly 18, 19 months ago, might be a little more than that. Uh, we were very, very bullish about oil. We saw this supply demand situation unfolding. You go back 13, even 14 months, and you talk about oil being in the 90s, hundreds, and people thought you were on drugs because they knew that there was no way the price of oil was even going to be able to go over 60, right? So um, perceptions of reality uh, tend to be influenced by what people kind of see in here right now as mm -hmm. opposed to looking over the, the mountain. So um, you say, well, what's the outlook and why? And and what we do is we're, we're looking at a, our oil balance. It, it's, it is a lot of moving parts. You, you have the issues of non-OPEC supply, what OPEC's likely to do, what demand's likely to do, what it does to inventories. And we always focus down on inventories because inventories and oil prices ultimately, uh, that's like the nexus or the intersection of all supply and demand factors. And, you know, you talked a little earlier about how uh, people were, looking at Russia and they're trying to look at the oil market as though it's all about Russia. And, you know, we called horseshit on that pretty often and pretty publicly because uh, you're ignoring 700 million barrels of inventory draws. And you're trying to say that oil prices are now, you know, at 90 or hundred dollars because of Russia. Like really, right. you're just going to ignore everything else. And part of that is because most people thought that inventories were going to build last year. So if you're telling Clients, you're at a firm telling clients inventories are going to build. How the hell do you then back up that inventories drew 700 million barrels? Like, what's your what's your defense on that? So, uh, for me, uh, when I look at what's happening, I end up landing on that oil burn analysis because I'm thinking we're going to get draws on inventories. The market's going to have to solve its own problem, right? That's what technically what a price should do. It should solve either an inability to produce or not enough demand, but the market does have a, a, a real functioning mechanism. And to me, the market is going to have to move up to a level that starts affecting demand. I don't see non-OPEC and OPEC supply being able to um, meet 
the expected recovery in global demand, which means you're going to have to ration demand at some point. That that's what we see. Yeah. And you know, we spent a lot of time obviously writing about these things for our clients and the ins and outs of it, but that's kind of the way to frame it out for a discussion like this. And uh, I gave you two numbers earlier. I talked about 130 to 181. That's where you have to sort of accept that oil prices are likely to be gravitating towards. Doesn't mean it's happening tomorrow, um, no. but that's what that's what we see unfolding over the, what I would call the medium term. And that's the number that, again, once you start getting up towards the $200 range, people start, again, to think that that's just unfathomable and it, and it, and it can't happen. You know, 181 is as near to 200 as, as you're going to get. I mean, you may as well, if you want to round it up, you certainly round it up there. So, you, you know, to me, from a geopolitical standpoint, from a supply-demand standpoint, everything lines up for oil to head to that sort of range. Is there anything that could happen short of this uh, cold fusion of the jar uh, or, or anyone finding that that seawater and sunshine solution that we talked about? Is there anything that you've got one eye on that, that, that you believe could potentially upset that, that ticket up to those little levels? There's always things you have to be aware of, look for. So just like in 2008, it was the global credit crisis. So it was something else that happened yeah, that would yeah. affect demand. Um, in the current case, you know, we worry about and have worried about whether COVID was going to cause a zombie apocalypse, right? That was like our big concern. You worry about something like the war in Ukraine having much bigger uh, ramifications uh, that can disrupt uh, normal global commerce. Ukraine doesn't produce oil, but it transits a lot of gas and oil, and it produces a lot of other different commodities, uh, agriculture as well as industrial. So if they're affected, does that then have uh, a knock-on effect that could broadly damage economic growth? So those are the types of things that we have to keep on our radar screen. They're non-oil factors, but if they affect global economic activity, it, it will affect oil demand, and therefore... You get into, well, okay, what's the supply response going to be? And again, that's why my job is a daily job, not a once a month job. But that, that's what I worry about. For the last couple of years, my big thing was, you know, COVID. Like, is it going to be, you know, some version of the movie 12 Monkeys or something like that? And, you know, uh, thankfully, no. But that is what you do worry about. Well, look, Mike, it's been a, it's been a fascinating hour. Um, I really appreciate you doing this. And it's been such a great you know, primer for people to kind of put into some perspective the enormity and the complexity of the oil market. I, I'm hoping that you'll come back and we can talk about this further. Now, with that as a grounding for people, we can we can get into some of the more technical aspects of it. Hopefully, you'll indulge me and do that for me another time. But in the meantime, look, thank you so much for this. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And perhaps you'd let people know how they can find out more about the work you do, the firm, um, and where they can kind of follow your thoughts. So our work basically only goes to clients. Um, and that's pretty much the way that works. But uh, if you want to reach out, if you're interested in the research, there's an info box uh, to contact us on the website, cornerstoneanalytics.com. You can send an email to info at cornerstoneanalytics.com and we can go from there. Fantastic. Mike, listen, again, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. And um, I hope we get to do this again soon. Well, thanks for having me. And, uh, and be kind when you edit. <laughs> listen, there's not much to edit out. This has been a fantastic conversation, but I will. I'll be, I, I, I'm going to maybe edit the dog in more. I'm going to get some more of that dog in there because uh, I missed him towards the end. <laughs> Thanks again, Mike. Okay, man. Thank you. Peace. Thank you. Well, as you just heard, the tendency of investors to reduce the oil market to a very simplistic set of decisions is wildly offbeat. What's more, while the dream of a carbon-free future is admirable, it's a very long way from practical, and that offers all sorts of investment opportunities for us in the meantime. As I said, hopefully Mike will come back and talk more about the machinations of the oil patch in the not-too-distant future. But until then, you can find out more about his excellent work by visiting the company's website, cornerstoneanalytics.com. And you can also follow Mike's colleague, Oliver Parsons, on Twitter, at Cornerstone Oil. That's all for me for another episode. I'll be back soon. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening.
Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.